Shed Platypus Says, episode 22. What a wonderful country we have. The best-known socialist in the country happens to be a millionaire with three houses. What I miss here? Well, you'll miss that I work in Washington. Yeah, I've been, I've been catching up with the um, latest um, pitch for next manager of the United States. Bernie Sanders has three houses. Yeah. Um, one of them he lives in, one of them he works in, and one of them is forgive him for his little holiday home <laughs> he asked for he asked to be like thousands of other vermonters i do have a summer camp forgive me for that where is your home which tax uh-huh. Uh-huh. yeah <laughs> um but i have a lot of skepticism about him being the nominee from the party and so i'm i'm very curious like what is going to happen to the bernie movement uh once the democrats say that He's not our guy. Mm. Mm-hmm. That they'll never let him um, win the candidacy. But if he did, it's going to provide a lot of material for Saturday Night Live um, debates with Sanders and Trump. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would definitely tune Which in. Which would be worth it. Right? Oh, it, it would be Maybe. great. It would be great. Uh, seeing as I think they were kind of getting behind Warren, that was their like chosen one, yeah. um, and so they'd feel like an ambivalence towards Sanders, uh, which might be good for the the comedy. Um, and obviously they hate Trump, so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And Larry David, uh, you know, who is back by the way, because there's a new season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, is kind of the man for the job. Like if we can have more Larry David and SNL playing uh, <laughs> Bernie Sanders, I would be. I would be down. Yeah, he's a better character than Kate McKinnon's Elizabeth Warren, who just seems a little crunchy. Mm-hmm. But maybe Elizabeth Warren's just a little crunchy, so that's all you can get, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Larry yeah. David. But here they are together. If if you become president, you've got to be flying back and forth. Yes, to play yes. him. Yes, on SNL. that's true. It's not going to be easy for me. It'll be great for the country, terrible for me. I'm getting you a good job for four years and you're complaining. She's doing too well. It's frightening to me how well he's doing. I have to rethink everything after this. Welcome to another installment of Shit Platypus Says, the commentary on the commentary on the left. This episode of SPS comes in two parts. First, Sophia and I take up the recent episode of The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. The Dig recently recorded a live event on the Bernie 2020 campaign in Cambridge, Massachusetts, featuring Jacobin founder Bhaskar Sankara, as well as assistant editor Alex Press, and they discuss what the Sanders presidency would mean for the American left today. We play some clips, discuss, and ask some critical questions about the Democratic Socialist of America's political strategy for socialism, and in general, what Jacobin has to say about Bernie Sanders 2020. On the second part of the episode, we reflect on the first Platypus German conference in Leipzig this past January. Our members join us to discuss the crisis of neoliberalism and the paralysis among the German left. The segment includes our Vienna member, Jim Kallenberg, and our Leipzig organizers, Clint Montgomery and Henry Mitko. Last but not least, the Platypus International Convention is happening in Chicago, April 3rd to the 5th, mark your calendars. It features an opening plenary on the American Revolution and a closing panel on the question of socialism in the 21st century. 
with speakers representing traditions from democratic socialism, Trotskyism, Maoism, radical liberalism, anarchism, all the isms, all there on April 3rd to the 5th. Okay, here we go. recent episode in Jacobin Radio and they did a roundtable discussion on Bernie, Bernie 2020 Mm -hmm. with Bhaskar Sankara who's the head of Jacobin Mm -hmm. and one of the founders and Alex Press who I think is also involved with the publication and they recorded it on the night of the Nevada caucuses and they're just you know touching base about what Bernie means for the left. Mm -hmm. And why why call for Bernie Sanders and what and the next steps really a lot of it was about the next steps and uh, we're here to debunk the historic opportunity of Bernie Sanders for Jacobin magazine we're just gonna throw some cold water throw some cold water bring in some sobriety yeah we're gonna have a listen and respond and respond and uh, see what Jacobin and, and the Bernie Sanders left make of this quote-unquote historic opportunity and, and see see what that's about. I, I think one important thing to remember is that democratic capitalism in most countries around the world that have those, those systems haven't, hasn't actually been able to prevent the left from getting into power. It's pretty normal for someone with uh, social democratic views or a social democratic party even to get into power somewhere. Um, What's difficult is actually wielding power and carrying out your program. Like that base of the capital system means that you know once we are in power, um, the radio won't be able to see the scare quotes, but you know, um, scare quote. Yes, um, you know we'll be reliant on taxing profitable companies. We're going to have to maintain some sort of base level of profitability. We're going to have to make measures to prevent capital flight. We're going to have to do things to entice investments in certain areas. Like This is how our program will be um, undermined. Um, the power of capital and the fact that we're reliant and dependent on, on having profitable firms. But I think sometimes we think about this huge dilemma that's facing the left and how weak we are. And we think that they're going to be able to prevent us from winning an election. And to me, compared to what I used to think even like 18 months ago, it's not clear to me that there's any mechanism they could prevent us from winning a election. I think obviously carrying out our program is a completely different story. So I think they're wishfully thinking about what the next steps will be should um, Bernie win the candidacy um, and what that might practically mean for them um, as self-conceived leftist. Yeah leftists um but it's um and they and they recognize they might be in a conundrum right yeah it's funny because the first part of the podcast or at least like 20 minutes into it they've emphasized so much that the parties are in disarray that the democratic party is tying itself into knots that it can't even choose a moderate and that we've maybe given too much credit to the party as a disciplined institution because here we see how it's you know fallen apart Mm-hmm. And then, however, in the rest of the podcast, you get the sense that they are 
they they recognize that they don't have as much power as that they think that maybe other people think that they do and Mm -hmm. that dealing with as they put it the power of capital Mm -hmm. means that um the things they want through a bernie sanders presidency may not be implemented Mm -hmm. well that is is true and that the other part of it is um i the left historically um that wielded politi- like a true left historically that wielded political power um had an organized um it wasn't just electoral electoralism um right they had an organized there was an organized working class um that um and and there was like a dialectical relationship between um i like the party and the class right Mm-hmm. Um, that seems completely absent today. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, I think I think there's um, this when when Bhaskar says, you know, the listener won't be able to hear me while I'm doing this scare quotes around the word power. I think it's a telling sign that there's a recognition that there's an absence of working class power. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's this question as to how the Bernie Sanders presidency would spark or um, help to advance a working class struggle, which is what the wager by the DSA is to advance working class struggle, which later on in the episode, uh, Bhaskar says, you know, like, maybe it's not socialism. We don't think it's socialism. He actually says it's not an ideological battle. We get it. You know, this is this is a social democrat, but what we're advancing is working class struggle. It's very obscure to me what that means because I guess what's missing today is not only the organized working class but also a political party for the left, um, like a socialist party. Um, and there's been historic socialist parties in in the United States with Eugene Debs, um, that are that are for socialism, um, uh, or in Russia. That are for that are explicitly for socialism, right? Um, and aren't kind of like doubling down and and um, I don't know, and just for like further like a further cap- a capitalist manager of the status quo. But these parties are explicitly for um, the transformation of society, uh, and that's missing today too, right? Well, you've just acknowledged that, and Baskar has acknowledged that too, and they think that. Bernie Sanders, even though the DSA itself is largely a middle class organization or maybe downwardly mobile middle class organization, that the Sanders presidency is sparking, furthering uh, independent working class power. That's that's the and, and I think one has to raise the question how that is the case. Their measure seems to be union organization and how strongly Bernie feels about quote-unquote, what a lot of them refer to as simply bread and butter issues. Um, But here's the thing. I think the tension is that what they have is an electoral strategy, primarily, about Mm -hmm. how to get, you know, these quote-unquote justice Democrats into power and support, you know, policies. Mm -hmm. To support policies. Yeah, so this idea of supporting this party within a party, right? Like, this is the idea that comes up again and again, or a surrogate party of, like, people that they agree with, but that will have a critique of the quote-unquote moderate part of the Democratic Party. So you have this tension in their ideas between this necessity for this outside force 
this thing that exists independently that they're almost affirming before it's actually there. I want to talk a little more about that like cart before the horse situation that we've found ourselves in. Like I think typically in most places where left parties or people have candidates have come to power, it's been on it's been thanks to the 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 formation of really strong left-wing political institutions and what we have here is potentially a president like potentially we're going to have a left-wing president without those institutions in place. So how do we kind of like re- use the Sanders presidency if God willing he he wins to to kind of reverse engineer that process? Obviously it'd be better to have the horse before the cart, but it's like too late and this is a historic opportunity that we can't pass up, but like what do we how do we do it? It's a great question. I mean, and so the sort of slogan I learned uh, when I was first coming to the left, you know, this is that the Democratic Party is the graveyard of social movements, right? And so, and I think often that is true historically. Um, and so we find ourselves, I mean, I'm the first to admit when I've been shown to be apparently quite wrong about things. And so, I mean, it's um, that Sanders has actually opened up space for um, working class reorganization um, on a mass scale. I think it's... Um, we don't have a mass movement of the sort that we actually need. We're nowhere close to that as far as the labor movement goes. It's an extremely disorganized um, country as far as working class politics go. Um, but it is true that Sanders is actually opening up space um, for that and in a way that, again, like I did not foresee um, being possible. Um, what it actually looks like to then say, okay, we find ourselves in this thing that you know, most of us that thought was not possible and, and not sustainable. And certainly it's not easy to evoke discipline on someone when you don't have the muscle um, in your institutions to do that. Um, I think part of what's exciting about Sanders is that actually as if we have a president who's op- who's sort of cheering on working class organizing, who, you know, whether it's he's shown it in the campaign, whether it's been sending his volunteers and his supporters to strike lines, to picket lines, whether it's the idea of him actually calling out bosses personally um, who are in disputes with their workers. I mean, this is a way that you actually can imagine that the idea of the Democratic Party is the graveyard of social movements. Is It's actually the exact opposite is what's going on with Sanders right now. Um, I see it all the time with workers who are organizing in their workplaces that actually Sanders provides a hook for them to be able to ta- start talking. So I guess about- um, she's acknowledging um, that there, there isn't like a mass labor movement um, and there's a realization of this, um, but she's still kind of getting behind Sanders because he's um, he's for the picket lines. Um, he will criticize the boss, this kind of thing for like the working class, whatever this is, but in and of themselves, I guess like strike action or yeah, or picket lines, this kind of thing, then they're not, they're not revolutionary in and of themselves for, as a tool, as a tool, but could be utilized as a tool for the left, um, a true left. It expresses like a discontent with, um, with capitalism, but it's not being taken up or used by, by a true left. Sanders is just proposing like a different kind of capitalism, right? Like a more progressive kind of capitalism that will somehow maybe, uh, maybe like work to ameliorate some of these um, discontents, but it's not to do with the left. And so it seems very opportunistic to me to be kind of tailing um, Sanders as some kind of potential for revolutionary force. Well, I think we have to be clear on what they're saying here in terms of what the, the goals come out pretty well in this this little roundtable discussion. It's not socialism. 
Mm-hmm. They really explicitly say it. Um, I mean, really, like they say class struggle. That's what that's what this conception of this is. So everything is about whether or not this is advancing class struggle as the quote unquote precondition for politics and a left politics to happen, wherein potentially there could be a struggle for socialism. And when I conceive of what Sanders is doing, I don't conceive of it as a democratic socialist ideological project. I conceive of it as a project to expand and revitalize class struggle in the United States. And I think our battle is not to revive socialism necessarily, even though obviously I think that'll be a byproduct as an ideological current. Oh, again, that makes more sense for like our particular project in, in socialist media. But the broader struggle is to revive the basis of class struggle in the United States. So when they say that Bernie is for the working class, she spells it out, Alex spells it out. She says, you know, they're sending their staff to the picket lines and Sanders is calling out the bosses. And now the workers that are organizing have something that, a hook, as she puts it, to organize other people to be against the bosses. And this is what they imagine that's going to like shift the political landscape of the mm-hmm. United States. They want to be for Bernie on the basis that through being for this electoral strategy of putting this man in power, you could spark class struggle. This is their Stalinism. This is the undigested Stalinism of the DSA, um, right? This, 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 these workers out there. So it's not like they themselves are organizing the workers, although some of them are involved in perhaps union struggle. But most of what you hear actually in terms of political strategy of the DSA is an electoral strategy and how they themselves understand how an electoral strategy translates into creating an independent working class power. I think the only bridge that they make between those two things is that Bernie is for the workers, that he will support strikers, that he will call out the bosses. They're not, they're not claiming that Sanders is revolutionary, nor are they claiming that he's even a socialist, right? He's a, he's a social democrat. The wager is that this social democrat in power will further the struggle, the working class struggle, the class struggle, which Bhaskar sees as a precondition for a shift in politics, but then would allow for socialists to make their case. And that within social democratic regimes, whether it be Sweden, whatever, Sweden gets brought up, that the Swedish social democrats were in power, Mm -hmm. that socialists can make their case openly. Yeah, you rightly point out what is the working class for them? What is it? What is this thing? Mm -hmm. Well, then, yeah, one could also say Trump ran his campaign on um, for the working class, right? Um, Make America great again. It was on jobs, on, on trade on um, getting people back to work off the slops of benefits. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it all kind of, although they maybe Trump and Sanders have different like tactics or whatever about how they're going to be for the, the workers, it all kind of blurs into, into one. Like Medicare for all in and of itself is not like a, necessarily a demand for the left. It's just a remanagement of Bonapartist society, um, whether you pay th- for healthcare through privately or whether the state subsidizes that money gets moved around it's part of the history of the left insofar as it's part of a kind of social democratic imagination of you know the state acting as a mediator and ultimately um in a way of ameliorating civil society conflicts between Mm -hmm. classes and you know not a question of working class power Mm -hmm. certainly and this is what's being assumed i guess 
there was that young woman in the Q&A. Uh, I spend most of my time thinking about scenarios endlessly uh, of what mm. could go wrong. And, uh, and then I canvas and I feel much better. You wonder about mm. that existential dread that mm. is felt by that person when she's asking herself these questions. What is it possible to do, um, you know, within a Sounders presence? And then she has to kind of go... The go canvassing for her is a way of like relieving the mm-hmm. the crisis. But through kind of not facing up to those anxieties, she just is part of like an obstacle to uh, to thinking or to and thinking would be required for um, a true a true kind of left to to emerge and be self critical of itself. Let's go to the answer to that question because if something happens. Yeah. I think we have to be very clear about what mass mobilization actually looks like. Um, and what it's going to take to force through, um, whether it's Medicare for all or whatever the pol- again, whatever policies are being sort of forwarded by the administration, you know, there's, it's just the, it's true that there is nothing as powerful as having millions of people sort of vo- vocally in favor of these policies, right. And in the streets and organizing at their workplaces in, in favor of whatever it is, Medicare for all or anything like that. Um, so I think like an extra parliamentary or however you want to term it um, in the United States context, um, the left is going to be critical um, to not just sort of integrate itself with the Sanders administration, but actually like critically support it and actually push it because there's going to be so much countervailing pressure on Sanders. What we don't want, and again, this is a horrible comparison and I don't really mean it, but when, you know, when Obama gets into the White House and the anti-war movement dies um, because the Democrats are now in charge. Um, that's an obvious simplification of what happened, but it's not entirely untrue. I'm part of this history. You know, there were some members of Platypus that mm-hmm. were in the USDS, and we saw that people put a lot of faith in electing this guy as a way of moving forward. And they all agreed that they had to be critical of this guy, and yet that it was moving, the the movement was was progressing as a result of, of, of his presidency. And And she's kind of warning people, and she's saying, you know, there is a real danger that that's what could happen here. What do you think it means for them to be critical of Obama or Sanders, that, that they would actually then just really force him to make sure the policies get through or something? Right. So this is her, what she's offering is what we need to do is pressure these people, mm-hmm. pressure them with having mass mobilization, having people on the street vocally uh, demand these policies. Mm-hmm. This is the mm-hmm. pressure that you put on these politicians to do what they sought out to do you tail them but you push them hard yeah you from behind you push you push <laughs> from the street the movement is mm-hmm. the thing so the the movement is everything and the goal is is nothing um there's there's no kind of connection between or no kind of conception of means and ends or what that might mean and so you really take historical marxism off the table which i guess that they're probably aware of anyway yeah you just have undigested um bad leftism social democratic at best but really kind of a social Mm -hmm. democratic movement quote unquote without a sense of its own history because the trials Mm -hmm. of this struggle of you know using the movement to push the democratic politician forward is an old Mm -hmm. tale and Mm -hmm. there there is some recognition at least in the recent history as alex on the podcast says you know there's a warning and yet there seems to be nothing else that they can do because they've told themselves that this is the historic opportunity and the historic opportunity is to tail the democratic party 
Do you know, I, we were reading um, in the Platypus reading group a couple of weeks ago, we were reading a Spartacist article, uh, Lenin and the Vanguard Party. In this article, um, which was written in the 70s, Tony Cliff was mentioned, who's a historic figure on, on the British left, um, and who is kind of, he uses, he vulgarizes Lenin's phrase, a bend, bending of the stick. I think it is, um, to mean that kind of like we'll, we'll use tactics of we'll get on side with the trendy movement to kind of tactically use that as a way to, to um, increase numbers towards our, our goal of socialism. Um, so Cliff himself conceived of this as, as an out and out kind of vulgar tactic that they were going to utilise that could advance their, their struggle. And then today you just have tactics are taken, the idea of like a movement in itself without any kind of end is taken as just gospel by the millennials. Um, that it's just seen as like the truth in and of itself without any kind of broader conception of what that might mean that you even had in, in, in the 70s with somebody like Cliff. Mm-hmm. Of course, this example of Sidisa, the recent example of Sidisa sh- should also be in the left historical consciousness of what happens when you take power you know, at the state level, mm-hmm. um, without the left in civil society, mm-hmm. and what that what that might mean. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's looking forward quite a quite a lot. Let's see if Sanders becomes the the DNC uh, candidate, the presidential candidate of the Democratic Party. Let's see what happens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, but mm-hmm. there's already the apologies already beginning. Even if he were the guy yeah. to win, we may not get much done. And so let's get ready. They're just mourning the loss of um, 2016, um, and we're going to have a few more years of mourning to come Well, on the part of the left. Let's see what it looks like in the second term of Donald J. Trump's presidency. Yeah. On that, on that note. Yeah. It was great speaking with you, Pam. <laughs> Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. that way this dog ain't never had his day yeah i'm a good loser so don't worry about my pride leave don't look back you can't see my hurt inside here with our members, all of whom were at the recent German conference in Leipzig. And we wanted to talk to you guys about the idea behind the conference and a general reflection. So how did this idea of a German conference come about to begin with? So the idea was to get the German chapters better connected and to spark new initiatives inside of the organization to just have a conversation in German language, because there's various other conferences that the organization does, but we never had a German language one. And as the German chapters and the German platypus section is growing, we decided to make this conference. So inside the organization, there's a lot of discussion about the crisis of neoliberalism and like post-neoliberal phenomena as Trump and Boris Johnson and Brexit and all these things. But we thought that um, we could have a conversation that is um, more centered on the specific German case, talking about what's going on in Germany. How does the crisis of neoliberalism manifest in Germany? 
And to really bring that out, we can really see how the crisis of neoliberalism has first manifested itself with Tyresa, Podemos, and then Brexit and Trump. And we wanted to gain a sort of hegemonic position in terms of what is actually the left saying in, in Germany, in terms of how this crisis is playing out within that reflective stance. What were some of the panels that you hosted at the conference itself? We had two panels that were based on the question of this moment of change, namely, if the past 40 years of neoliberalism are in crisis, what does that actually mean for the actual development of politics within Europe? And the two panels that we chose for that then were, on the one hand, democracy in the left, and then the other one was posing it just very simply point blank, namely the crisis of neoliberalism. I'm just wondering if you could quickly fill our listeners in on how the crisis of neoliberalism is taking form politically in Germany. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, in the UK, we, you've got like um, Corbyn and Johnston, and um, in the US, there's Trump and Sanders. Yeah. What's been going on with the so-called left in Germany? So basically, the left of the last 40 years of neoliberalism has been, in the same way, a sort of accommodation to the sorts of structural changes that were necessary for the reproduction of capital. So when you say that they were accommodating, um, could you be specific, since um, I think a lot of people might not know the political scene in Germany? So who do you mean here by the left, and what kind of accommodation? So the German left has been more or less split between a social democratic orientation and an explicitly Stalinist orientation. So a lot of the German left has for its point of departure Bernsteinian Stalinism. On the other hand, most people influenced take their cues from a basically social democratic orientation which means basically following the Labour Party and the progressive liberals in the U.S. We had just basic social democrats. So we had Annika Klosak, who's part of the social democratic party, but part of the youth portion of that, which does maintain a degree of autonomy, but is basically orienting itself from progressive liberalism in the Anglophone world. We had Ingar Zolti. So he's somebody who's actually working with the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung, who's actually working with the party trying to upgrade these various Marxist points about global capital production. And then they were able to also have somebody who was there in terms of the late Maoist necessity of a um, working class party who thinking about, okay, once the whole thing goes in a very basic social democratic direction, how do we actually think about the necessity of global revolution? And so this was um, um, Stefan Bollinger. So he was part of the the, the DKP. So he was part of the, the Maoist group that forms after the elimination of the Communist Party in Germany. And they take a lot of like the Maoist themes from that. And then we had an anti-German, and 
the anti-Germans are a unique case because they actually emerge from the failure of the left and they do try to orient themselves around that after the collapse of Stalinism. What does that mean? Uh, meaning what kind of political positions? How would they differ from a social democrat? The basic point of the anti-Germans is that Germany was supposed to realize the world revolution, but they didn't, and instead they had the Holocaust. They take that very seriously. Okay, so I just want to mm, recap because I'm I'm afraid that we're going quite detailed, but I think the reason why we're going quite detailed into the uh, political perspectives that were represented on this panel is because you're kind of bringing it back to this question that Sophia posed, which is what does the crisis of neoliberalism look like in Germany? And you have explained that the two forces here that are pulling are, and in some senses actually two sides of the same coin, is this Stalinism force, this kind of leftovers of Stalinism, and then this a kind of social democratic liberalism, I guess you would say. The point is that like the social democrats gave rise to Stalin, and therefore they're repeating Stalin. When we talk about Stalin and Stalinism, we have to realize that it's not a question of a form of governance, but rather a perspective on human freedom. What we really had on both of these panels was eight different varieties of Stalinism. Okay, let's zoom into the one panel so that then we can get into the specifics. And I think it'd be good if Henry and Jim could also join us in their observations. So we've kind of laid out the big concerns and the the big questions that were present in our members while they were organizing these panels. So you had the Democracy in the Left panel and the crisis of neoliberalism panel, which which was the the theme of the conference, crisis of neoliberalism. What was the panel like? What came out from this panel? I would guess we talk a little bit of, about the crisis of neoliberalism panel. And uh, I think there were some interesting dynamics at play. And it turned out to be the case that the anti-Germans seemed to be the antagonist on the panel. And I think one of the most interesting moments was when he said, I don't think the left is part of the solution. That's what he posed uh, to the other speakers, but it's itself part of the problem. And he tried to highlight that neoliberal transformation was itself like the left participated in that, whether it's Tony Blair, Bill Clinton or Schroeder and the Agenda 2016 here in Germany. So this is something he tried to highlight. And then he said, so what we are seeing right now is like the dissolution of the welfare state and all we can do right now. And he was very explicit on that is um, trying to preserve what's left over from the welfare state. And this is what we got to stick to. And we got to find a politics that um, is adequate to this task. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, probably we don't need to be talking about revolution or all these kind of things. I actually posed a question to him and tried to ask him if he would mm -hmm. think that's much different from, let's say, voting for Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn, or if that kind mm -hmm. of social democracy is something he would agree with. And he basically said, yes, I can understand why people do that. And this was interesting because then like that really poses the question, if that's like anti-German theory now, or if that's the anti-German answer to the crisis. Ingar Zolti from the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung and Stefan Bollinger from the theoretical journal, that they were both blaming neoliberalism on the right. And that was a big moment for Jan Gerber. 
he actually confronted them directly and said, look, you have to realize that the left was playing a part in neoliberalism. From that, they were actually able to open up a bit and talk about what capitalism is. Jan Gerber, who you just mentioned uh, and who Henry was talking about, that's the anti-German. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So he was able to open up that sort of perspective because they were blaming that a lot on the right. And we've got to also recognize here that like the analyses that Ingar and Stefan were giving about neoliberalism were very empirically accurate. I mean, they were they were right when they were saying this is actually a right wing project, but they were refusing to admit the role that the left played. Gerber in an interesting way, he was trying to hold an open position there, but then he came to identify right wing with freedom and left wing with equality. Yeah, I think that that actually remained very unclear. So he basically tried to to root the current crisis in the Cold War era, saying that we had this opposition of values, the opposition of capitalism and socialism, freedom and equality. And like with the dissolution of the Eastern Bloc, with the dissolution of like industrial labor, this party system itself would dissolve. And um, so he brought up Italy as an example where he said like the Democrats as well as the Communist Party already like dissolved in the 90s. In the German case, that would have been different because there was this inner German split between Eastern and Western Germany, and that's why it would not have manifested so much in the party system itself. So he sees the current crisis of the political center, if you will, as a delayed effect of this coming to an end of the Cold War era. He located the crisis of the present party system in the age of industrialism itself. Like, he basically said that, like, this entire party framework is within the terms of the industrial revolution, basically. And so the entire party system is tied to this industrial revolution framework. Like, how do we mediate, generate, expand that? And he said that, like, that's no longer the framework. That's no longer the adequate thing. But that he was completely unwilling to talk about what would actually look like post that. Jim, I'm wondering, if do you have any reflections on the crisis of neoliberalism panel or what struck you? Yeah, sure. Especially as, uh, Clint, you mentioned uh, the question of the perspective of a crisis of neoliberalism. And I found it interesting that none of the speakers uh, really mentioned uh, neoliberalism as a phenomenon of crisis. So everybody saw neoliberalism as a kind of right-wing phenomenon attacking society, attacking the welfare state and the achievements of working class and left politics. And everybody took the perspective of fighting this attack on society, on the achievements of the working class. There was no position. Like, normally, if you see something as a, a crisis, then there is, of course, a problem in the status quo, but also the possibility of uh, going beyond uh, this crisis and of a positive, let's say, positive solution, revolutionary solution of this crisis. And I found it quite symptomatic that none of the speakers posed the question of neoliberalism as in crisis and for that as a chance to overcome neoliberalism. 
I felt reminded of the cop from South Park. Every time there's a crime, he just uh, says, move along, people, nothing to see here. Move okay, <laughs> people, move along, there's nothing to see here. This is just so, instead of solving the crime, uh, he sees uh, his job in covering it. And that's what, what all the panelists uh, did. They explained kind of empirically um, from the position of capital uh, neoliberalism, as if everything went in the normal Marxist way and nothing has happened, nothing to see here, just move along as if nothing happened. And I think like the opposition, as you called Jan Gerber, the anti-German, as the antagonist, his only antagonism was in being honest uh, about this uh, lack of perspective. As he said, the only thing we can do is being conservative um, towards the welfare state. Um, while the others just described leftist fights uh, trying to defend or resist the attacks by neoliberalism, uh, Jan Gerber also said, like, we have to stay with the welfare state, but he called it, very honestly, being conservative. And none of them, also not Jan Gerber, mm -hmm. so in this part he was not an antagonist, but the same uh, direction as the other speakers, um, none of them right. uh, pose the question of going beyond neoliberalism. So seeing yeah. it as a crisis that, that has to be solved revolutionary. So, so no one on the so-called left is prepared to lead lead a transformation of society beyond the crisis that is capitalism in its various forms. No, so, none of them. This was, of course, symptomatic in also in in all the conference and and I think it's in most of the platypus panels uh, that. There are representatives of larger or smaller organizations of the left, and none of them is able to present uh, propositions how to change society within the um, associations or organizations they are part of. So Gerber said something pretty interesting in his opening remarks. He said that the SPD and the CDU, the current ruling parties, are going to have to go away. They're going to have to fall. And he said, actually, that is a good thing. But he didn't say what would have to come beyond that. Instead but, of that, he basically collapsed into neo-social democracy himself. Right. But, but that's where I found the position of the Stalinist interesting, because in answer to the question of how do we think about this sort of change, Bollinger says, What's the difference between liberalism and neoliberalism? Bollinger says it's a very concrete question of class politics. And that question could be interesting if he wasn't just simply aligning the whole question of class politics to the Cold War neoliberal framework of the left versus the right. So in answer to that sort of like response, he says, well, the difference between the French Revolution and what's happening now is that in the French Revolution, it was, he called it the bourgeoisie, we can just read the third estate, was actually trying to liberate itself from feudalism, whereas now what we have is capitalism trying to retain as much profitability as possible. So he was drawing it back to a concrete class question without any sort of political understanding of who's actually mediating the state, like who's actually mediating that question of class power.
another thing that really lurked over all these panels was the question of if we came to talk about like what is post neoliberalism, everyone seemed to have this fear of an authoritarian transformation. I'm not entirely sure about Jan Gerber, but um, he at least also said that the current party system is falling apart if we come to talk about the CDU and the SPD. And I think that was like one of the most frustrating things because like if we come to look at the things that just recently happened in Thuringia, it's actually the AfD that's benefiting from uh, claiming democracy for itself when parties try to undo elections because they're not satisfied with the outcome. So that's something that was there in all these panels too, especially the one on democracy and the left. And what I found most frustrating about that one is that we really just had three various versions of uh, the same argument, which was, okay, unite and fight the right. And that was really, I don't know, that was like frustrating for me at least. What was the frustrating that it was kind of, it was kind of boring in trying yes, to... Yes, it was boring and the, the, the panelists were extremely repetitive. So so that was kind of frustrating in terms of did we learn anything here? That was the question that haunted me at least. Jim, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I think especially on the question of boringness, emptiness and learning something in the first uh, mm. panel on democracy, I have a kind of different view, uh, especially from the perspective of Platypus. In the beginning of the panel, we had a very clear opposition between Klaus Dörre, who is a professor, I think, in sociology, and Dennis Grammer was his name, Dennis Grammer from the Association for the Design of History in Leipzig. Um, and they had at the beginning a very clear opposition uh, of a pro-democracy and an anti-democracy position. So Klaus Dörre, the professor, mm. took a pro-democracy um, position, claiming that we have to democratize companies and um, develop basic democratic structures uh, in every institution and stuff like this, while Dennis Grammer from the Association for the Design of History claimed that at the moment um, we wouldn't win in terms of democracy because people are not socialists. So we have to think about the possibility of transforming society and taking power without democracy, having the democratic um, uh, transformation as an aim. And so they started to argue about their interpretations of Rosa Luxemburg, where, where Klaus Dörre uh, post that Rosa Luxemburg criticized Lenin for being non-democratic, while Dennis Grammer uh, said, at first we don't have to be democratic, but in the end we have to be democratic when revolution mm. kind of already uh, happened. And I think this was in the beginning quite interesting because we had a clear opposition of a pro-democratic and anti-democratic position, while Stefan, our member of Platypus, who jumped in in the panel because uh, one of the speakers couldn't come, while Stefan held the position of criticizing everything. And um, I think also the, the audience was very interested and, and active, like it were lot, lots of students who wanted to get a kind of practical uh, advice. And when the other speakers kind of got rid of Stefan, who claimed at the beginning he was the bad consciousness of the left in a Kantian sense, <laughs> the other speakers wanted to get rid of him, uh, uh, labeling him like as the party spoiler who is critical about everything. 
then they got uh, the possibility to elaborate on their ideas and their pseudo-concrete proposals. And I think then was the point when it became totally confusing and empty. Like then was the point where uh, uh, Klaus Dörre could propose his democratization of the companies, which is actually uh, in Germany already the fact, like the companies are totally with the Betriebsräte, uh, totally democratic. Uh, and the other, um, Dennis Grämer from the Association of, for the Design of History uh, proposed, yeah, we just have to so socialize uh, the flats, the key industries mm -hmm. and stuff like that. When they become conc became concrete, so it became totally empty because, of course, it's obvious for everybody that we live in a total democratic society in this, uh, in the terms of uh, Klaus Dörre. And we also have no uh, possibility for the socialization of flats, um, uh, of key industries and stuff like this. So I think this one hour of total emptiness, boringness and confusion was uh, mm -hmm. uh, precisely when they, they were able to develop their idea, ideas and be uh, pseudo-concrete uh, after getting rid of uh, Stefan, the bad consciousness and party spoiler. And I think it was, it became very clear. So to the question of learning from this emptiness and boringness, it became very clear that uh, precisely the bad consciousness and the party spoiler, Stefan, uh, was the only one who held up the flag of revolution here. Like, and socialism. Yeah, and socialism, yeah. I mean, this was the question I, I raised then, as they insulted each other of misinterpreting Rosa Luxemburg, um, <laughs> I, I raised the question like to insult both of them to misinterpret Rosa Luxemburg as for her, it was not the aim after revolution democracy and it was neither fetishized, but for Rosa Luxemburg, of course, democracy was a means for socialism. And this question, how democracy could be a means, wasn't raised uh, uh, in this panel. They They were, in the end... Everyone was happy uh, with democracy and ignoring Lenin's democracy is, of course, a, a form of uh, state domination. And as long there, as there's a state, there is uh, not freedom. And where freedom is, there is no state. So this question was totally rejected, uh, uh, especially when Dennis Gramer, who seemed to be the radical on the panel, uh, stated uh, uh, as an answer to a question, like, let's be serious to ourselves, everybody here in this room. Uh, let's be serious uh, and honest. Nobody of us believes that after the revolution, politics will not be necessary. So he uh, rejected the possibility of making politics, and that is domination, unnecessary. So it was really, it became clear in all this confusion, emptiness and boringness, it became very clear that this boringness comes from rejecting revolution, while Stefan's bad consciousness and party spoilerism uh, is the flag of revolution. I wanted to ask you what this means for the future of platypus in Germany, and specifically platypus in Leipzig, which, uh, you know, Leipzig hosted this conference. And um, what, what was the mood like? Did, uh, were people interested in platypus? What do you think this signals for us moving forward here in Germany? We had like a very good turnout for the whole conference. Um, it took a lot of organization beforehand and we tried to get people coming and that worked out very well. So we had about 100 people showing up at the crisis of neoliberalism panel. And there seems to be a lot of interest in having these conversations and even the venues we talked to, which we approached for doing this um, events, were really happy in doing so. And 
And I think Platypus might be capable of filling up a void here. So we try to curate these panels in a way that somehow challenge each other. And I think that worked out very well, especially with the Crisis of Neoliberalism panel. There's certainly a ton of organizational potential because there is a theoretical deficit that Platypus is certainly fulfilling. And in terms of that theoretical deficit, I would just point to one other sort of aspect. The question of the role of bourgeois parliamentary democracy was actually posed several times on that initial panel, but it never gained a specificity in terms of what this question of bourgeois political democracy means for the actual question of social revolution. You think that it reveals an absence. Right. So like Klaus Dore says at the very end, I mean, he's he would be on the other side of the barricades in the 1918 revolution, that he would have preferred that we have a bourgeois democratic republic as opposed to a workers' revolution. And this sort of question got asked three times on the panel without any sort of actual concreteness about what the function of the bourgeois parliamentary democracy state apparatus is for. Uh, I was very glad about the audience in Leipzig because every uh, event was packed with people, uh, young people, mostly students, um, and people were very interested, asked questions, and we had great uh, discussions after the panels. The conference showed that Platypus was a place to really discuss also critically um, the issues uh, of politics because people want to do politics really as platypus we want to do politics but we have to be serious about the impossibility of it and i think in the coming five years we will really experience the death of the marxist uh, left at least in the youth like mostly all of the orthodox communist organizations in Germany died after the last split of the SDIJ. And I think um, Platypus has to, in Germany, be addressed as the place where Marxist politics are being discussed uh, and is, I think, singular with that in Germany uh, in the next five years. Yeah, agreed. We're going to close here. There's a lot more to discuss we encourage everyone to join us in our reading group to talk about some of these issues. And uh, wherever you are in Germany, there'll be a platypus near you soon. Thanks, guys. Thanks for talking today. Thanks, Thanks Thank Thank you. This has been a production of the Platypus Affiliated Society. Platypus is an international membership-based group that organizes reading groups, public fora, research and journalism focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new, and post-political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. Platypus also publishes articles by thinkers and activists on the left in the monthly publication The Platypus Review. To contact, learn more about, or get involved with Platypus, and to access the entire back catalog of The Platypus Review, please visit us online at platypus1917.org.
I guess I feel like we're obviously symptomatic as a millennial podcast. Yeah. Um, and I feel like I'm having ambivalences that we're also tailing the Democratic Party yeah. too. And um, and Bernie Sanders. This is the zeitgeist, I guess. It's how it's what we're getting from it. I guess we're the most interesting millennial podcast that takes up um, politics and the question of the left. I'd like to think so. That's good. <laughs> we can be the most interesting symptom. Yeah, I mean, the question is whether or not we're capable of um, being conscious of of our participation in this left moment that we're having. So that when when it's over, as it will be, and things kind of die down, we can bring some of those lessons to bear, whereas the rest of the left usually likes to forget and move on. Nothing to see here. Mm-hmm. Well, there's kind of also no recognition to their, their part in um, regression. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. I guess it's too early to tell for platypus as well, though, to what extent we're capable of uh, advancing human knowledge towards the possibility for freedom Mm -hmm. it's a that's a that's a judgment to make after after our project Mm -hmm. (laughs) so (laughs) well we're cautiously optimistic but we're not putting our eggs in the bernie sanders basket let's just put it that way Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. but but zeus bless you if you are and uh you should come on the podcast to talk about it (laughs) Okay. <laughs> okay.